Hello and welcome to the Dialogues Podcast. My name is Luis Felipe Lamusi, looking for someone to share an apartment with and your host for the season. And today our main topic is affordability. Greg Sudor, senior researcher at the Weasley Institute, shares his thoughts and gives us a lecture on the best and the present of Toronto housing market. Also, students from the Institute Without Boundaries here at George Brown College have been studying this affordability issue. In mid-January, they were part of the Design TO Festival with an exhibition that wanted to make people rethink what affordability is. The students created a fake political party called Afford Nation, a great wordplay by the way, to introduce to the public their new perceptions of affordability. But before we start, I just want to say a special thanks to Sheena Glenn, Madison Snell, Shuri Bascar and Marcela Cordeiro for the interview and also Casey Hinton and Robert Giusti for connecting me with the students. So hi everybody, thanks for coming today. Hi Sheena, Madison, Shuri and Marcela. And so I want to start the interview asking, I know this year you've been talking about affordability. So the first question is, why affordability? Why this thing? Yeah, so um, the IWB picks a topic every year that kind of fits into their like five-year plan. And I think we're in the first or second year of their next five-year plan. And this year is um, affordability that was just kind of brought to us on the very first day of orientation of like, here's your topic, go. <laughs> uh, yeah. but, but also, I mean, as a design strategist, we usually um, we're willing to tackle very weak problems, and affordability is one of them. That it's connected with everything, so you have to go like really, really deep in order to understand the problem and mm -hmm. come up with some solutions. And did you find any solutions or maybe a ways to attack <laughs> it? There are solutions that exist. We know, like there's ways that can lift people out of hard times. But the problem is there's people at the top who have control over those solutions who mm -hmm. don't want to implement them. We're not really looking for new solutions, although sometimes they crop up you know, throughout our research. It's more about how can we change people's ideas that affordability and unaffordability is not just about them, it's about us. So how can we lift all of us up? So just changing... That, that is about yeah. everyone, because also there is this misperception that affordability uh, can be just about poverty, but it's not just about that. Yes. It's like a very complex issue that is going to affect us all. Mm -hmm. Yes, yeah. yeah, so we're focused more on just shifting perceptions of affordability to kind of lead us to that affordable world and implement these solutions that already exist or have been figured out. This has been interesting for us also because we, we are a diverse group and it's kind of changing our perceptions on what we had thought and in these four months we have changed our perceptions mm -hmm. towards affordability. So it, it changed something in your personal lives or yeah. just the perception of walking every day yeah. and seeing the world differently? One thing that we're interested in is the false choices that people make. So you think that you're choosing from a suite of options, but really like you having to move two hours out of downtown Toronto to find an affordable place to live, but then having to drive two hours in, like you were kind of forced to make that choice of, I need to find somewhere to live. I need a roof over my head. Yeah. I'll sacrifice my commute time in order to find that safe place to live. Like, it's not like you're like, yeah, of course I would love to have a two hour commute. It's <laughs> like one goal in life, but no, it's, you were forced into that choice and then we're looking even at deeper choices of do I eat or do I um, like buy a new winter jacket kind of thing yeah. like, what are those even deeper choices yeah. and here like weather is something that 
because I'm, I'm I'm from a country. I'm from Brazil. I'm from a country that weather is complicated, but it's not like I need to buy stuff to leave. Mm-hmm. You know, so when I get here and I have to decide if I'm gonna buy a new coat or I'm gonna buy food. Yeah. So Got it. <laughs> totally. <laughs> totally, right? Yeah. And so so these are decisions we are making every day. And, and sometimes like we call them decisions, but it's you you're forced into them because there are no other options. Exactly. Right? Yeah. And so one thing that we're also interested in is is food and healthy food versus like fast food and things like that. Of oh. the perception of um, people who are poor eating fast food because that's their choice, but really it's about quick calories, quick nutrition, and not even nutrition, but just feeling full um, for less. So that perception, again, of um, the poor, well, they're always eating poorly and uh, not making good food decisions, well, they don't have the means to make good food decisions because we've skewed what good food means. And usually those people are that live far from the work, so yeah. they're spending more less time taking care of themselves yeah. and more time commuting, more time. Sometimes, like with nutrition and stuff like that, like the actual like functional value of food is so much more important than the monetary value, and it's mm-hmm. it's like kind of taking that spin on affordability in multiple ways of like yes, like, can I afford to do this? Like, can I actually physically pay to do this? But, like, can I afford to do this? Like, if I'm eating fast food, is that bad for my body or bad for, like, a situation? And then it's getting people, and I think that's kind of where, like, we started to think about the political party and that sort of stuff. And since you brought that about the political party, uh, let's talk a little bit about the exhibition. Yeah. Why did you guys made a fake political (laughs) party? We have an exhibition from our program as part of um, Design TO. And so we were challenged to come up with what's the framework for the exhibition? Like, how do you want to communicate what you've researched from the end of August to, like, beginning of December? How do you want to communicate those ideas to the public? So uh, our main idea is about, it's about value, it's about choice, it's about opportunity. Um, And then one thing we've also discovered is um, changing policies and politics, they're just moving too slowly to catch up with the demands of people. Yeah. Zoning plays a huge role in uh, stop sprawl, not develop, because, you know, Toronto is getting more and more people every day and we're running out of places to put them, so they're going outside of Toronto, so they're sprawling. We're creating sprawling cities where nobody talks to each other, so we need to not be afraid of the development in cities that can bring us closer together, you know. Mid-rise buildings, um, there's lots of talk of the missing middle when we talk about housing affordability, of mm-hmm. where's the yeah. duplexes, where's the triplexes, where's all of the houses where you, you don't jump from the single detached, single family home to the 50 floor apartment. There's levels in between that we're not building because people are wary of what does this uh, densification mean for our city, what does, uh, and the developers are worried because our zoning laws make it difficult to build these kinds of buildings. It's just it's just that that also has brought like a fake scarcity of mm-hmm. buildings and housing. But it's like, oh yeah, because there's no more housing here in Toronto. Yeah, I mean, they could be where like the yellow belt comes in. Yeah, so sixty percent of residential homes in Toronto are single detached homes, and they're specifically zoned only for that kind of home. So even if you demolished it, the zoning restricts building any kind of level of building. So you just have a huge swath of area that's just single family homes and then the solution to that was oh let's just start like building into the green belt and it's like don't do that that's our air 
Before connecting the AWP to schedule the interview, I thought our program was more focused on housing rather than the concept of affordability itself, so it was interesting to chat with Dan and change my perspective on this issue. However, as I was talking to Dan, I realized that I know how Toronto is now, but I have no idea how we end up in this situation. That's why I also talked with Greg Sutter, he's a senior researcher at the Wellesley Institute and a specialist in affordable housing. So today here we are with Greg Sutter. Thanks so much for receiving me today. And Toronto is new for me. I've been here for, for not a long time. So do you think Toronto is an affordable city right now? No, it's not easily affordable to most people, the housing here. Most yeah. people would say that. And, yeah. and you know, by, let's say, uh, objective, dispassionate, comparative standards, it's very expensive. Yes. And it was always like that? No, no, this has changed a lot in, in recent years. You know, the big escalation of, um, we can talk about homeownership and rental, mm -hmm. right? So the big escalation of homeownership prices has, you know, it, it started in the early 2000s, but mostly it's, it's over the past five to seven years. If you oh. went back 10 years mm -hmm. ago, Toronto was, you know, less expensive than you know, in San Francisco or New York mm -hmm. or Sydney or Melbourne. And now it's just like... And now it's similar, Just right? similar, yeah. really similar to those yeah. cities right now. Yeah, so uh, I, we should talk about ownership and rental, okay. right? And so let's step back. So Greater Toronto grows by about 40,000 households every year, right? Household could be a family, single person, whoever's okay. occupying a dwelling unit, okay. right? A house or an apartment. So adding 40,000 a year, right? So you need to do enough building of the right kind of thing to keep up with that growth. So overall, about 30% of households rent their home. And so of that growth, long-term, long-run, about 30% of the homes you need to add need to be available to rent. You know, So we've had a big shift back around the turn of the millennium, like let's say 1996 to 2006, all of our growth was in home ownership because interest rates were low mm. and prices were moderate and the economy and incomes were doing very well. They were growing very robustly. And so, um, so there was no increase in rental demand. In other words, the number of renters, even though the city region was growing rapidly, the number of renters was not growing. So that meant the, the rental market was sort of soft and kind of benign, right? And like, just like, yeah, not like something you have to worry about. There wasn't pressures to push up prices, okay. right? So then after, let's say, around a decade ago, after 2008 and the recession, and we had this huge increase in ownership prices, right? Low interest rates, more foreign investment, you know, whatever other factors are in the picture. Mm -hmm. So this means fewer people can afford to buy, more people stay renting for a longer part of their lives, right? And some people are, who might have made it into home ownership before, they don't, right? But then we need to talk about supply, you know, and so and do we have a system yeah. that produces more homes or apartments, houses or apartments that can be rented? If we look at, you know, we looked at demand a minute ago and then so supply. So what sort of system do we have for providing rented homes, right? And so like different countries have quite different systems, right? So in Canada today, I shouldn't say in Canada, it's certainly in Toronto and in much of Canada today, you know, where is the, the net increase in rental housing coming from? Well, it's it's condominiums, right? And about sort of half of, well, give or take, half of new condominium units are rented. Mm -hmm. But that's kind of, you know, it's it's sort of 
investor speculators, yeah. affluent households who yeah. want to buy a unit and realize a capital gain in five years or something like that. If, if we look at that, what sort of renting is, is our system? What sort of rented housing is our system building? You know, we, we used to have different different systems in Canada. So, for example, from the 1950s to the 1970s, a long time ago, half a century ago, <laughs> you know, we had a whole sector of private firms that built and operated, you know, apartment buildings mm-hmm. entirely for rental, right? And that's how those post-war towers yes, that yes. are scattered across our urban landscape, that's how those were built. And many of them are still owned by those same firms. But developers and those firms don't like to build all rental buildings today because, you know, it's much more profitable to build a condominium. You know, you, you realize your your investment return mm-hmm. as a developer, you know, in a three-year period of building the building, and then, then you've made your money and you don't have, yeah, to, yeah. you don't have to worry, worry about long-term risk and yes, property yes. management and this and that, right? So, so that old model of the structure of the industry and the way investment happened that was out the window 40 years ago, right? Mm-hmm. And that private rental development in that period was about a third of total housing production was of that sort. Oh, right? About a third, yeah, for basically 30 years. Yeah, yeah. And then for another 30 years, just starting a bit later, from the mid-1960s to the mid-1990s, we had fairly strong social housing production, mm-hmm. right? So, so we had those systems. And then, then we got to that period around 1996 to 2008, when sort of there wasn't any increase in rental and, and governments and taxpayers and, you know, the media, they sort of didn't care. Like, rental didn't yeah, sort of matter like, to anybody. It's everything good. Why are you know, we're not worried about yeah. it, right? And so then rental demand sort of surges back in this past decade. Mm-hmm. So sometimes the long-run needs don't fit the way the market actors yes, are course, organized and structured, right? And so it's not that I think that government can just march in and solve the problem, but I think that they Public should. policy needs to grapple with this set of complex okay. factors. Yeah, in, in, in this episode, I'm trying to figure out how people like me, new immigrants, uh, students, young people are going to, when they get here in 10 years, how they're going to see the city and how the city is going to uh, be affordable for those people. You know, what, what have we been seeing and is that going to change, right? So we've been seeing a lot more young adults sharing places, right? Sharing yes, apartments, yes. right? And sharing, you know, three to an apartment or whatever, right? To afford the rent, right? We've been seeing a lot of that. We've been seeing a lot more young adults staying in the home of their parents where they grew For up. longer. If they're from a family that has yes. that kind of comfort, yes. right? And of course not by, by, by no means do all families or all young people have that option, yes, right? Yes, um, you know, we're seeing a lot more um, renting of basement. Uh, anecdotally, there's no good data, but we're we're hearing more about you know basement apartments and renting rooms, three rooms in a basement, that sort of thing, mm-hmm. right? especially near colleges and universities. Yes, yes. Um, so, in many ways, I would say we have to look to how the huge existing housing stock gets adapted to the the needs and for example young young adults needs right so if you look at you know we build more or less you know 40 50,000 housing units a year in greater toronto but we've got you know over 2 million right so the question is how does that existing stock get adapted and that's that yellow belt 
analysis that you talked about, for example, you know, houses that often are big houses, 1,500, 2,000, 2,500 square feet. And can those be subdivided into apartments? Yes. You know, can neighborhoods and neighbors understand that that's something and that needs to happen to, and meet, accept Disney to reality. meet our needs? Yes. Yeah. Yes. You know, we need to see some of that same adaptation of essentially you know, moderately large, mm-hmm. older houses into smaller units that can accommodate. Do we have any concrete uh, things happening to, to this yellow bed to change right now or n- not? I, I wouldn't say too, too actively. Mm-hmm. You know, there is, there is zoning permission for basement apartments in many areas, but of course many of them are not built to building code or good quality, right? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Thank you so much, Suter. It was a really great talk to try to understand what is happening to Toronto. I came here to try to understand what is happening now, but actually I had a, a, a great lecture about the past 70 years. It's easier to know the past than the future. Oh, yeah. <laughs> And that's all for today, folks. It was a great episode trying to understand how Toronto housing market works, what GBC students are trying to change, and how did we end up here, sharing these tiny apartments, commuting for one hour to school, and living off Subway, McDonald's, and cups. Cups and cups of coffee. Like Mr. Suter and I talked before, let's try to imagine which kind of city we would like to live 10 years from now. And if you have any ideas, email me at podcast at dialoguenews.ca. And please don't forget to subscribe on the iTunes app or any other podcast app that you use. That's all for today. See you next time. Bye.